Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey, you're listening to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, and I'm glad you are. Um, there's not much setup for today's episode. It's really pretty straightforward. We're continuing through the uh, letter to the Romans. We are only two chapters from the end now. We've been doing it for almost three months, and it's been surprisingly fruitful. Uh, not surprising because it's God's word or anything, but um, we rarely stick with anything this long. We're usually hopping around, but We've really done a deep dive here, and um, this this week is particularly concerned with figuring out the, um, I think the theological term is adiaphora, those things on which there can be disagreement in the church, and everybody is still Christian. So um, unfortunately, he doesn't lay out like a systematic theology where we get real clear about where the boundary lines are or what the limiting principle is. But it's still helpful. I, I think it's really good for people to know that there is such a thing as being overly scrupulous and too discerning within the body. So uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will, because that's what the sermon was on, Romans chapter 14. I hope you enjoy. Here it is. We've been preaching through uh, one chapter a week in Romans for, you guessed it, 14 weeks now. Last week was chapter 13 in which we were told to submit to uh, worldly powers as an extension of our, obedient, of our obedience to God. It was uh, probably the most unpleasant sermon I've ever given. I did not enjoy it. I expected many of you to be mad at me afterwards for what I said, and uh, I was very surprised afterwards. Everyone received it in a good spirit. I, I, the only explanation I have is that the Holy Spirit was here working in our hearts because we, we definitely heard a message last week that goes against things deep down in our bones, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can receive a message like that. So I've been very encouraged all week. There were people that I, I just knew were going to be offended, and, uh, and they weren't. That's weird, isn't it? Um, Romans, let's zoom out. Romans, we've been in this book for 14 weeks. It's Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the assembly, assembled body in Rome. This was meant to be read aloud to all the people who claim the name of Christ. And from the very beginning, it was dealing with tensions between Gentiles and Jews who were now following Jesus. And remember, a Gentile is just a non-Jew. Jews were people of the old covenant. They received the law from Moses at Mount Sinai. God gave his law to Moses at the top of the mountain. He brought it down to the people. They were the chosen people taken to the promised land. God had been faithful to them through the ages They'd been promised a Messiah. Jesus came, and then the covenant, the new covenant, was opened not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And in Rome, you had these two very different people groups coming together under the name of Jesus, and there's been a good deal of conflict. And so this book has been written in large part to help them navigate those conflicts. So he starts off condemning the Gentiles for their old way of life, condemning the Roman norms, and then he turns to the Jews for feeling like they're more special than the, the Gentiles. And he goes back and forth and he corrects both. 
he reemphasizes these themes. All of us are born in sin. All of us are born needing to repent and receive salvation through the atoning blood of Christ Jesus. All of us are called to live sanctified lives. These are themes that we found throughout the book of Romans. Two chapters ago, we started going through um, uh, hard moral teachings that unite all of us. The non-retaliation, not taking vengeance for ourselves, trusting God to take vengeance. Then submitting to worldly powers and putting other people before ourselves. Obedience, submission, that's what was last week. This week, we are going to be dealing with how to uh, navigate conflict within the church about scruples. Scruples, most of us have heard that word before. A scrupulous person is one who takes issue with a lot of things, right? Who's very concerned about the particulars. Now, with, between the Jews and the Gentiles, there are two major things, scruples, that came up between them. What do we eat? What holidays do we celebrate? Jews had kosher law, right? There was a lot of rules about what they could and could not eat. Gentiles didn't have any such rules, so that was a source of conflict in the early church. If you read Acts of the Apostles, eventually they called a council in Jerusalem to see, okay, what are the basic rules all Christians must follow? And were there rules about diet? There actually were. Two. There are two kinds of meat you're not allowed to eat. What are they? No. We can eat pork. You think I'd let you eat pork if we can't eat pork? We can eat pork. No food that was strangled. If an animal was strangled, you should not eat its meat. If you don't know that, it's because I failed you as a preacher. It's right there in your Bible. You never eat meat that's been strangled, ever. And if you don't know where your meat comes from, you really should. And that's just a basic dietary thing. If you don't know where your meat comes from, they're pumping all kinds of chemicals in there that's not good for you. You should know where your meat comes from. This is 2022. You should do this. All right, the second, you shouldn't drink blood. We've talked about this one before, I know should not drink blood ever, and that was never undone in the Bible. The Bible's very clear that life is in the blood. You should never ingest blood. These are dietary laws that were put, but everything else, we can eat pork. We can eat shellfish. We can eat anything with a cloven hoof, anything that doesn't chew the cud. We can eat all that stuff. However, those are the two things we cannot eat. Anyway, he's going to talk about dietary division in here between Gentiles and Jews. He's also going to talk about holidays. Jews had their own liturgical seasons around uh, uh, the major festivals of the, te- uh, the, the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, the Passover, uh, a lot of stuff around the harvest. When they come to Jesus, should they maintain that, or is it okay for Gentiles to main their own, maintain their own holiday season? So these are just two examples. We're going to start with these that Paul talks about, then we're going to grow out of this. This is going to be a frustrating sermon. So last week was scandalous. This week is just frustrating because we're standing at this point in history after Christians have divided so much. But Paul wrote this chapter so that we could navigate division within the church. I think I've done enough setup. Let's let's attend upon the word of God. Listen. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. As we go through this, I want you to hold on to that sentence. We're talking about people who are weak, and what he means by that is people who are easily, they stumble in the faith easily. They're with Jesus, but they can easily uh, get chased away. So accept them, and then don't quarrel over disputable matters. Okay, so we're going to come back to what's disputable and what's not. But the basic principle stands. 
Verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. All right, so let's time out for a minute. Here, a basic reading would go, oh, they're having a conflict between vegetarians and uh, non-vegetarians. All right, and so this is a conflict that we find in our current society. Uh, the thing is that ancient peoples were not refusing to eat meat. For you know, Nowadays, when you meet a vegetarian, usually it's like, oh, I don't like how the meat industry treats animals, or um, I, I think it's cruel, or um, meat is unsustainable, and we're all going to die if we keep eating meat, so I'm only going to eat vegetables, something like that. They didn't have any of those concerns back then. I'm not going to say not a single person did, but that's not why people weren't eating meat. If you've read 1 Corinthians, he's very clear. Outside of Jerusalem, the only time you were going to eat meat was when it was dedicated to another god. In Jerusalem, they had the temple and they would have meat dedicated to Yahweh, the, the God of heaven and earth. That's our God, if you don't know it. But outside of there, say in Rome, they had temples to all kinds of other gods. And the only time that you would really be able to eat meat was whenever animals had been sacrificed to those gods. And so if you were eating meat, you were eating meat that had been killed in order to glorify some other god. And in 1 Corinthians, he, he navigates this and he says, we know that other gods have no powers against Yahweh, therefore we can eat that meat and not be compromised. But here he's saying there are some people whose faith is weak where when they see you eating meat dedicated to an idol, that will scandalize them. That will ruin their faith. So he's saying we have to learn not to judge one another. Some people are going to draw this line and say you can't eat meat dedicated to an idol. Other people will say, hey, no line exists. We can eat this and be just fine. He says we cannot be judging one another over this. He says people on both sides are servants of God, and you cannot judge another person's servant. On the face of it, there's not much to object to here, right? All of us know you and I are not going to judge who makes it into heaven and hell, right? It's God alone who judges. It's not we who judge. We, we, are, not, we are not in a position here and now to say only these people make it. Only the, That's not our job. We can say what the Bible says, but does the Bible say anything about this particular issue? Well, it says that we can eat, that, that the restrictions have been thrown away. Therefore, it's not something that we should be fighting about. That's what Paul is saying. Y'all really shouldn't be fighting about this. Is this the dumbest thing that churches have ever fought about? No. There are people who leave churches because uh, they changed the color of the carpet, and they didn't like that. There are people that leave a church because they were just singing hymns that they didn't like. All right? So people leave for all kinds of stupid reasons. Let's go on. Verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Okay, so this is the holiday question. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Let's, let's, let's stop right there because he doesn't come back to the holiday question to my, to my memory. Here, a lot of people would look at this and say this is a comment on the Sabbath. 
that he is contradicting the Sabbath. I really don't think it's meant that way. The Sabbath was instantiated in the Ten Commandments that on the seventh day God rested, so we should rest. We're seeking to be godly in our own lives. I really don't think Paul is saying that we shouldn't observe Sabbath. I really think that he's observing this, this, this contention between Gentiles and Jews where they have their different holidays. And this is something that still affects Christians today to some degree. Um, I really don't like Halloween. I think there is a lot of really problematic stuff around Halloween. I think there's a lot of worship of death and debauchery. I think there's a lot of bad behavior. Sarah Beth and I, we do not have the porch light on on Halloween. We're not giving out candy. We're not having our kids dress up. I know that makes us weirdos. I don't like Halloween. I think it's icky. Now, I also acknowledge that nowhere in the Bible does it say, you shall not observe Halloween. Therefore, I'm not going to judge any other believer. If you love Halloween, great. Do it for Jesus. That's the standard it sets here is whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eat meat, eats meat does so to the Lord. So what it goes on to from here is whatever you do, if you can do it for Jesus, then do it. Let's ask some basic questions. Can you go to a strip club for Jesus? No. Can you go gamble away your family's money for Jesus? Can you go rob your neighbor for Jesus? Now, some of you are smiling and laughing at me. Others are going, what, what are we doing here? You can't sin for Jesus. So that's the thing is if, if you can do what you're doing and stay holy, maintain your holiness, grow in holiness, then do it. And he's saying you can grow in holiness while eating meat. You can grow in holiness while being a vegetarian. You can grow in holiness while observing the Passover or Easter or neither. But there are some things that you cannot grow in holiness in, and then you should not do them. It doesn't matter if everybody else is doing it. it. doesn't matter if that's what's expected. It doesn't matter if, oh, I really want to do it. That's the main dividing point between believers and non-believers is there are those of us who do what glorifies God, and then there are those of us who do what we want. And those two things are not the same. Sometimes they can overlap, but even if I'm doing what I want, I'm doing it because it draws me closer to God. If you're doing things just because it feels good, just because you want to, and you're not even thinking about God, then your heart's not right. That's what he's focusing on here, is all of us are servants of God. All of us are dedicating all of our lives to God. And therefore, I shouldn't be looking at my sister and saying, well, you're not doing everything exactly as I do them, so you're wrong. There are churches that get into this where they get so persnickety, so scrupulous that they judge each other on things that aren't even in the Bible. And churches like that should fall apart. We have to be gracious with one another. We have to understand we're all reading the same scriptures. We're all going to emphasize different things. And there has to be some graciousness where we acknowledge, hey, you know what, my brother Bud, he doesn't do things exactly like me, but he and I have the same Holy Spirit. We worship the same God. And I can be gracious where he sees things different than me. That's what this is about. It's trying to maintain unity in the body when we all see things very differently. And Paul does not say we all have to see every single little detail exactly the same. Rather, he says, everybody should be convinced in their own mind. He just now said that. A lot of you have been tracking with me. I've been interviewing people on film for some time and doing it through the church. We set up a recording studio. And I've sat down with many Christian brothers that I disagree with. I even sat down with some Baptist preachers. Can you believe it? And I loved these brothers. Man, did I really enjoy it. Now, I don't agree with them on everything. 
But when they extend the, extend the hand of fellowship to me, I grab it as fast as I can because these brothers love the Lord as much or more than I do. I get really worried about Christians that so easily divide from other believers based on things that are not in the Bible. You know, they're, 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 within the tribes that I acknowledge today, tribes, denominations, there are some people that are fully convinced in their own mind that you should not baptize anyone who is not an adult who doesn't fully understand the faith. They're, they're, they believe in believer baptism is what it's called. They don't like us who baptize infants. They think that we're doing wrong. And so people get offended and they separate and we can't be in fellowship with you. I can be in fellowship with people like that. We disagree. I love them. They love me. We see things different. Uh, I don't have to separate based on that. There are some people uh, in the Reformed tradition who believe that we have no free will, that God alone reigns sovereign, that we're all just doing whatever he puppeted, you know, scripted us out for thousands of years. I don't believe that. I'm an Arminian. I believe that we have free will and, and that God is still sovereign and that it's just a, a big mystery and it's weird. I can be in fellowship with people that believe things that I don't. And that's what I try and model as I talk to these people. I don't want to have a church where we're also, we're the Methodists. We're the only ones that have got it right. Everyone who's not Methodist is going to hell. Give me a break. Give me a break. There weren't Methodists until 250 years ago. You mean to tell me all the Christians before went to hell? No. We're not the only one. Anyone who's got this book has got the truth. And we're going to interpret it a bit differently. We're going to have different traditions around it. But there ain't going to be a Methodist section in heaven and a Baptist section and a Catholic section and a Presbyterian section, a Lutheran section. Give me a break. We take ourselves a little too seriously with this stuff, y'all. There are just those who have died to themselves and been born again in Christ Jesus, and then there's everybody else. And you'll find that the people who've been born again, they really don't care about the tribal labels. They care about, have you been born again? They care about, have you been meditating in the Word? They care about, does your life glorify God in everything? That's the main thing. And Paul's trying to get us to think about the main thing, not the details. All right, I think I stopped at the end of verse 7, didn't I? If we live, this is verse 8, if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So here, I hope this sounds like the exact same thing I was saying. Whatever we do, it should be for God's glory. I don't own anything. My life is not my own. I've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. If I'm living, it needs to be for Jesus. If I die, and yes, he calls us to die sometimes for him, then it needs to be for him. If my life is about me, I'm doing it wrong. The whole joy of living in faith is that my life is no longer about me. I am a miserable boss. I am a miserable person. If my life is about me, golly, just, I'm damned. I'm miserable. But if my boss is my Lord Jesus Christ and my life is his, then I am most blessed. Verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Let's, let's be clear. I know we have a perfect church and we never judge each other unnecessarily, but are there other churches with other believers that judge each other unnecessarily? Yes. Churches fall apart all the time. Over things that they really, you know, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, one of the last prayers he says is for the unity of his church. And people will divide the church over silly things like dress code. 
or whether or not children are allowed in worship, or whether or not we sing the hymns that we like. They'll divide over all kinds of things. They'll divide over political stance that the pastor may or may not have, or their Sunday school teacher may or may not have. People divide over all kinds of crazy things, and they are being rebuked by this chapter. We should hold together. Christ died for his church, for us to be held together in one body by the blood of Christ Jesus. He did not die so that we could separate off and go, well, I, I like this style of music, so I'm going to go have my own church over here. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think the uh, message of uh, Reformed Christianity is being preached hard enough, so I'm going to go over here. The, the question is, are you reading out of the Bible? Are people's lives being oriented to glorify Jesus in everything that they do? It does not matter if you have perfect doctrine preached from the pulpit every Sunday. If people's lives are not being transformed by the Holy Spirit, it's not a church. And you will find plenty of churches where they have humdrum pastors that are preaching idiot sermons, but they got some saints sitting in the pews, and that is what Christ died for. I do not think my sermons are the difference between your salvation and damnation. I don't. I, don't think pre I think preaching is important as a public witness to who Christ is, but I do not think it saves you. It's only the blood of Christ Jesus that saves you. It's only the transformation of your life that is evidence of your salvation. I love preaching sermons, and of course, I think I deliver excellent sermons, okay? I would not give you anything less than my very best. Even so, I am not up here saving you. And whenever you're talking about your church, you're bragging about your church, it should never be, oh, we have the most wonderful pastor, he gives the best sermons, because we shouldn't care about that. What matters is the quality of the discipleship here. Now, I don't want to shame you. If you've complimented me publicly, thank you. I really appreciate that. But the, the thing this church has got going for it is not me. It's you. And if you hear that and go, oh, well, I'm a bad Christian. I, ooh, Jeffrey is confused. No, I understand some of us struggle. But I understand every week I got up here and I preach a hard word and you thank me for it. And you love each other and you grow in faith next to each other. I see you do it. And yes, you're not perfect yet. However, you're not the person you used to be. You can receive a hard word. You can receive the truth. You can walk in faith. You can show up Sunday after Sunday even though you feel bad because you're not doing right. That is evidence of the Spirit working in you. I got off track. I'm going to say verse 10 again. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. I think he, he's, he's kind of uh, being hyperbolic. He's, he's treating some people as though they believe that God's not going to judge other people, that it's our job to judge them. And, of course, we all know, surely, God's going to judge everybody, right? God does not need me to judge anybody. He's going to judge them just fine. So within the body of Christ, there are some things that are ludicrous and should not be tolerated. There's a lot of ink spilled in the New Testament about things that just don't belong in the church. So grumbling does not belong in the church. Um, greed, licentiousness. Sexual immorality, these things, it's very clear, do not belong in the church. Dishonesty, power hungriness, these things do not belong in the church. There are a lot of other things where we can show some grace. We can be gracious, we can be forbearing and forgiving, and we really should be, and that's what this is pointing us to. Very, verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. 
Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Do not, by your eating, destroy... I'm going to read that again. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I don't like this section. Because what it seems to be preaching is that if you have somebody persnickety in your midst, if we have somebody in the church who just, you know, I've got this thing, I, I really don't like it, then it's saying we need to operate. <sighs> Excuse me. We need to operate around it. So, you know, I have a really hard time focusing on God whenever we have kids running around. You know, well, okay. Then I guess we, no kids in worship anymore. You know, or, you know, I have a really hard time focusing on God whenever there's an electric guitar up front. Okay, I guess no more electric guitars. I mean, that's the natural outgrowth of this way of thinking. It's talking about food. And to a certain degree, I can acknowledge this. Like, for me personally, at dinner sometimes, uh, something goes really well with a glass of wine or with a, a glass of beer. I, I, I see nothing wrong with having a drink or two. However, there are plenty of people that struggle big time with alcohol, and if I'm having them over for dinner, I'm going, do you want a beer? All of a sudden, they are doing spiritual warfare on a level, and I could be tempting them greatly, compromising their faith greatly. So now, we don't offer alcohol to people who come to our home, and it's not because we don't trust you can't hold your liquor just because I don't want to be tempting you. There are just some things that, I mean, it's just not helpful. Who cares if I like a beer? If it hurts other people, I can't drink beer. That's some clarity that I've gotten over the years. When you see the power that alcohol has to ruin lives, then it's just not good for me to be, well, I don't have that problem. I'm going to do what I want. And if it hurts somebody else, well, forget them. You know, that's not how we're not supposed to live that way. That's why we have grape juice in our communion rather than wine. We don't want to trip anybody up. That's, this is the scriptural precedent for that. So you might think that's silly. I don't. I've just seen the power that alcohol has to destroy lives, so I just don't do that. And Paul, he's saying, if some decision you're making is potentially destroying someone else's walk with the Lord, just don't do it. It's not worth it. You know, uh, heaven is not the alcohol drinking place. Heaven is the Jesus place. We go because we want to be close to Jesus. If something I'm doing is scandalizing someone else so that they are being blocked from Jesus, I've got to stop doing that. Um, I'm going to go on and, and, and uh, turn to another situation where these principles were kind of at play. Um, we're in verse 19, right? Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Okay, so that's a good thing to hold on to. Whatever you can do should lead to peace and mutual edification. Edification means being built up in Christ. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That, that's a polite way of saying shut up about it. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts 
is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. What does sin do? It separates us from God. So the notion there, and I've already talked about it, is every single thing you do in life should glorify God, should bring you closer to God. That sounds silly to some people. It's not. I've, I've spent my entire life in pastoral ministry trying to dedicate every single thing I do to God, and it can and should be done. God has done everything needed for your salvation. He's done more for you than you could ever do back for him. He deserves every ounce of you. Everything you do should be for his glory. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you observe Halloween, every single thing you do should glorify God. And if it doesn't glorify God, you should stop doing it because it is sin. We have to be concerned about the weak among us. Is that concern clear from this scripture? So one of the things that really tried the church over the last couple of years is those who are physically weak. What do we do about COVID spreading around? And so there were a lot of campaigns and a lot of churches that if we love our neighbor, we will mask up. We will not expose them to the toxic air potentially coming out of our mouths. This was a trial. You know, there are some people, well, I'm free and I, I'm in good health. I don't need to worry about that. Well, what about your weak neighbor? Do you need to worry about them? We all kind of know on some level we should worry about our weaker neighbors. There, there are some churches that went a step further and said, well, we believe the vaccine stops transmission so nobody can come to worship unless they've been vaccinated. We found out this week that it's conclusive that, that the vaccines never stop transmission, but for a long time a lot of people thought they did, said they did. And so the natural extension of that is, well, we don't want to harm anyone who's weak, so you got to mask up, you got to get vaccinated, otherwise you can't be a part of the body. We can't have you here. This was a really hard trial. I'm, I, I'm not, I mean, this is a thing where the Bible doesn't talk about it, so I'm not going to say that churches that masked up and had mandatory vaccination, I'm not willing to say they're not Christians. I'm not willing to draw the line there and say, I cannot be in fellowship with such people. But you know that I never closed things down here. And I never made anyone wear a mask that didn't want to be, and I never told anyone they needed to be vaccinated whether or not they wanted to be. And it's not because uh, I worship the individual freedom of people. You know, there are some times where, you know, if somebody just feels clear in their heart that they're going back to Eden and they don't need clothes and they're going to come to worship naked, I'm going to keep them from coming to worship naked. I'm going to be the mean preacher and go, I'm sorry, I know you're okay in your spirit, but we can't have naked people running around here, okay? I can draw that line. That's, that's clearly something that causes people to stumble. But the whole mask thing, and I, I never got clarity on that. And I think that's where we, I mean, that's, that's where we have to be gracious. And that's why our church is doing well and other churches aren't. When that moment came, we were gracious with one another. You were gracious with me. A lot of you saw that I didn't have the same concerns or that I didn't digest the information the same. And I had very few instances of people shaming me and being nasty to me. I'm not going to say it didn't happen, but I'm going to say it happened much less for me than for a lot of pastors. And that's why I was able to keep going through that hard season. That's why this church is doing as well as it's doing now. And I think we made the right decision. I do. I mean, standing on this side of it, I, I think we did well. But even so, I, I acknowledge that in the midst of that season, it was really hard for a lot of churches, a lot of pastors. There are a lot of churches that still carry the wounds of that time, and it's because they weren't gracious. It's because they weren't accepting of people who saw things differently than them. And that's where the integrity of the church is constantly put on trial. Can I be gracious with my brothers and sisters in Christ who vote differently than I do? 
who enjoy different parts of worship than I do, who really focus on different parts of the Bible than I do. You know, um, we live in a very ungracious age. I hope this is the last subject. I, I think we're over time. No, we're right at time. We live at a very ungracious age where all voluntary organizations in the West have seen a precipitous decline in people's involvement. It's because people are increasingly intolerant of people who are different from them. Robert Putnam started tracking this stuff in the 1990s. He published a book called Bowling Alone. He talked about how bowling leagues were going way down in involvement and attendance. This is fraternal organizations. This is Kiwanis. This is public service organizations. This is the church. Anything where people have to deal with people different from them and they're not getting paid for it, they've stopped doing. And now people have gotten so intolerant that they're not even willing to work in a workplace sometimes if it doesn't match their values. People are insisting, this workplace must match my values. The church has to be a place of tolerance. Now that doesn't mean that we have no standards. We have many standards. But that means we don't lift up any standards that unnecessarily divide. So the two principles I want to close with, this was chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And we need to have the discernment to know what is disputable and what's not. Whenever I'm up here disputing every Sunday, it's over things that the Bible talks about that I think are mandatory for us to take a stand on. But if it's not mandatory, we should not take a stand on it. The second one is verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. This church should be a peaceable church where everyone is growing in faith. Amen? Amen. And that means that I've got to get over my scrupulousness, my persnicketiness. You've got to get over your persnicketiness. We have to be gracious even though we see things differently. And if we can continue to do that day after day, week after week, this will be a body that glorifies Christ Jesus and grows because we stick together. Who's going to stick together with me?